You're listening to Live with the League, part of the We Love Where You Live podcast series brought to you by the Michigan Municipal League. Um, so we'll get started. Uh, we are waiting for uh, Michael Wallace from the National League of Cities, but he's got another webinar he's doing in another state right up till noon. So he will jump on in a minute. Um, in the meantime, uh, I do want to mention just a couple quick things. Um, our next uh, Live with the League will be on uh, Tuesday, uh, June 1st. And we're going to maybe move that from Monday to Tuesday because of the Memorial Day holiday. Um, we also have a uh, webinar on Michigan's lead and copper rule on May 20th. And on May 25th, we're having a free webinar in conjunction with the Michigan Municipal Executives about creating a culture for community success. And the speaker for that is Doug Griffiths and his 13 Ways team. Um, and he comes highly recommended from MME, the Michigan Municipal Executives, uh, because they um, uh, they had a couple of sessions with him and they really liked him. And they said, hey, this guy would be great for your members. So we're going to have that. And then we have, do have a couple uh, non-related uh, American Rescue Plan t- hot topics we're going to talk about after we talk about the American Rescue Plan. And those deal with the short-term rental issue, which is a, a very a hot topic. You should have got an email from us on uh, our Action Alert Center uh, today. Um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the gravel mining issue as well, which is another hot topic. So we do have Mike Wallace now on the call. Uh, Thank you for joining us, um, Mike, and uh, appreciate you being here. Mike Wallace is the um, uh, Director of Community and Economic Development for the NLC. I hope I have that right. Yep. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. All right. Thank you for joining us. And we got a couple other people from uh, the NLC just here on standby with us as well. So appreciate uh, Brian and Alejandra as, as well. So thank you for, for joining us. Uh, so, um, Mike, uh, just kind of jump into it. Um, I, I do encourage attendees to submit their questions they have for Mike or for our team in the chat. Um, I know a lot of state leagues are asking for your time. So uh, coming on us, I think we're one of the first ones that you've joined us with. So we really appreciate that. Uh, so the new guidelines are 151 pages. Uh, that seems like a lot. Were you surprised by that? And what, well, uh, what, what would you yeah, think? Yeah, I, well, I just want I just say at the outset, uh, you, you're one of the first, and certainly your league earned it to be one of the first. I, I, I don't want to get lost in the shovel how valuable um, your league and leadership of your league was really, even the beginning of last year, helping us figure out the technical aspect of moving dollars to all 19,000 cities, towns, and villages. It's, uh, it's new, it's breaking new ground. It hasn't been done at the federal level before. I think one of the reasons 150 pages is because uh, it, it really showed um, just how, uh, how little understanding at the federal level, the federal level had regarding local government operations, especially municipal government mm-hmm. operations and all their different varieties. There's 50 states, there's about 3000 counties, 19,000 or more um, cities, towns and, and villages. Um, and so, you know, because this is such groundbreaking work, uh, it's not surprising that, there, that there's been um, some growing pains and a few stumbles here and there. Um, but, but, but we did it. We're, we're here. Everybody's going to get a calculated share uh, um, of their grants, despite the steep learning curve. But um, particularly with regard to helping us figure out how to get the dollars out to everyone, um, uh, your director and your league was, was just invaluable. I think. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Matt. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, we really value your partnership, too. Uh, the National League of Cities has been a tremendous help for us. A lot of the things that we've shared, are t- whether talking points or PowerPoints, you know, that comes from you guys. So it's really a, a two-way street. We really appreciate it. And, and uh, you know, I think we also know the value of the M- NLC is just like a, an organization. So if your community isn't already a member um, here in Michigan, you should definitely consider being a member of NLC. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah. No, I, I was going to say the, the surprising thing to me is that um, the the interim rule is as good as it is. You know, it, it's it's not perfect, but if you think back to the CARES Act Coronavirus Relief Fund, the first the first guidance from Treasury under the CARES Act was 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 really off base in, in many ways and betrayed a fundamental lack of understanding about the intergovernment relationship between states and cities, cities and counties, um, the um, uh, really the realities of the ground on the ground for the smaller communities who may only have two or three or maybe not that many professional staff members and the part time council members who are dedicating so many hours to these these things. So, um, you know, the fact that they've taken steps to control the burden on smaller communities to make things as flexible as they think they can. 
um, th you know, th those are all really good things. You can see within the guidance, they accepted a lot, uh, great deal of our recommendations that they responded to questions they were getting. Now, I don't want to say it's perfect because we are seeking mm -hmm. some fixes uh, in some cases. And in some, in some cases, we think prohibited expenditures are actually eligible under the, under the law, even if it's not under the regs. And, and we've been in, in dialogue with uh, the top treasury officials, you know, since the guidance has come out and raised some of these issues. And, uh, and can say that, um, you know, there's, it, it appears there, there's a good chance that we'll get some of the, the fixes that we're seeking. Okay, so, so, so can you give a couple examples of those and what members should expect down the road potentially? Yeah, there's a fix? So, so there's two, there's really two reactions or two things, two big things to react to. One, one reaction, of course, is the calculations of the grant amounts. Um, that in some cases look different, in some cases very different from the estimates provided by Congress. And, and so that's one set of concerns. Um, we've done our own analysis to make sure that every dollar is accounted for. So we can say Treasury's not holding any dollars back. All 65.1 billion for municipalities is accounted for in their calculations. Um, so we've urged Treasury to be as transparent as possible. I mean, not even as possible, to be completely and utterly transparent about how they made their calculations, what they may have uh, changed in terms of their estimates, what their sources of data were, so that a, if a city wants to have an understanding of, of, of the amount that was calculated for them, there's no mystery, there's no lingering questions there that even if, uh, if Treasury can't satisfy uh, an increase or something like that, you at, least, uh, you at least understand why those calculations have been made. Um, the way that they were made. So, so we're working with them on that. Um, secondly, on the eligible expenditures, although we, we uh, really think they've done a good job, a couple places where we'd like to see some, some changes. One is in the broadband infrastructure category. Now, I'm not the broadband expert, but the, in general, what we're seeing is a, is a rule that's too restrictive that in practice, it would essentially, uh, the outcome would be that cities provide uh, temporary hotspots uh, with these dollars for distressed communities, but the, uh, the rule is not flexible enough to build lasting infrastructure to deliver that same service to those communities. And really that lasting build out is what we had contemplated when the bill was, was put together. So we're looking for a change there. And we, um, we've gotten some good response from Treasury on that that makes us think we may have some success there. The other is that Treasury for the purposes of calculating revenue loss, um, Treasury decided that publicly owned utility revenue cannot be calculated in those losses. And we are urging them to reconsider that because we know that for cities that operate their own utilities and many of those cities, because of state preemptions on, on um, locally derived revenue, and there are places where those utilities have in fact become, have started to subsidize general fund dollars because you can't raise, raise revenues in other ways. Um, we also know that cities have been making utility payments on behalf of residents who can't make wages, that utilities have implemented their own um, shut off moratorium so that people don't lose power and gas and that sort of thing, water uh, during, during the crisis. And the fact of the matter is all these steps are being taken uh, to, in response to the economic harm related to the coronavirus emergency. Now it's very clear in the bill, economic harm related to the coronavirus emergency is an eligible expenditure. So, so we think that um, all, all the expenditures and revenue losses concerning publicly owned utilities ought to be calculated as part of the municipal budget for the purpose of this program. So that's another area that we, we made a strong case for, for that. We think we're, we're likely to be successful uh, there. Uh, there was no principled stand by Treasury on the position that they took. Uh, they simply said they, they borrowed a definition from Treasury that excluded public utilities. So we think we'll probably end up getting a fix there. The third area where we think there should be a little bit more flexibility for cities is as Treasury's adopted a good principle, the principle is funding, spending ought to be forward looking and not backward looking. So in general, they don't want cities to use these dollars to pay off prior, prior debt or to satisfy uh, prior expenses. Uh, however, there, you can make the case that cities, um, many cities drew down on their reserves uh, specifically to account for unanticipated losses and spend and expenditures related to the coronavirus emergency. 
the rule says you know you can't replenish your reserves like it's a blanket prohibition but we're, what we're saying is rather if your city can can demonstrate and show that they drew on the reserves in order to meet these unexpected losses and unexpended expenditures those are covid related um that's covid related spending and the loss yeah. of reserves itself is an economic harm for cities that rely on those reserves for lots of things, not just rainy days, but to maintain their credit ratings and things like that. So we're urging some flexibility there. Maybe not, you know, permission to 100% replace. This bill was never meant to be a dollar for dollar re replacement of lost revenue. And so we're not asking Treasury to make, make, make that change now so that cities can account for every dollar they've drawn out of the revenue or drawn out of the reserves. But we think that these dollars should be able to be useful to, to restore some reserves in the case where they clearly were drawn down on um, to yeah. respond to the coronavirus emergency. Now, that's an important point because I know a lot of our members went into the rainy day funds during this period of time. So and they've been asking us that. What, what are the likelihoods of that getting changed, you think, or at least adjusted? Well, that that's... Um, you know that's a it's, we may be able to get the change but then the 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 question is well how how much documentation will be required to prove it and is it going to be so much documentation that really it's not worth it to anyone to to use it in this capacity or not so so there's a lots of lots of different considerations there um i would say in general treasury has been very receptive uh, to our input um so far and we've We've not heard just a blanket um, principled no to any of the concerns we've brought up so far. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. I, uh, go ahead, Chris. The first item you brought up, just talking about some of the allocations and the changes in the allocations and the transparency. I know, obviously, from the front end, that's just how how these dollars laid out is is really important for our members and just knowing kind of where that last that last bucket of funds is. I know when you guys did your, your big uh, webinar last week, you had like three or 4,000 people on. Um, the conversation at that time was there was some expectation Treasury would finish their estimates the end of last week or early this week. You have any more insight yeah. there? And well, they, ha they haven't provided it uh, yet. I know that they're, they're trying their, their best. I think what's happening behind the scenes is that there's still... Um, contending with the different intergovernmental structures uh, state by state. So uh, although it's clear that cities and counties, you know, have their own pots, and that means if you're a resident in a city and a county, um, you're res you're, you count twice, right? You're, you're, you fall in once for the, for the county calculation and once for the city calculation. There are some states where residents essentially live inside more than one municipality, right? So um, they live inside a town, but they also live inside a village. They both provide, um, you know, uh, the uh, same level of services, but they don't duplicate the services. And those are the issues where Treasury is really trying to trying to work this out. And and it's, we haven't made it super easy for them because we've abided by a principle where we've always tried to minimize the state authority or state interference, state responsibilities in this manner, um, because because of the lessons learned from the CARES Act Coronavirus Relief Fund. So it's not a, it's not a situation now where we simply want to say, well, the states know their cities best. Let let them sort sort that out. It's actually you know Treasury trying to work through those issues. So that so that's probably the holdup behind the scenes. What Treasury right. ha has released for the small cities though, they have released the total lump sum going to each state that um, that should be sub allocated down to localities. Uh, so while I haven't run the actual per capita calculation for each individual locality, it, it is possible if you're if you're good at this to look at the lump sum, find the most recent census data uh, for all your cities under 50,000 and, and, and try to run a simple per capita calculation. But I will again say uh, what got us sort of into this mess was estimates and that's going to be an estimate. And so we really do need um, to not make assumptions or, or feel good about a number until we see the final uh, treasury um, uh, designated calculation. Right. You mentioned a couple of things there. One was you talked about the allocations and there was a list that came out from Congress that was an estimate. So now, you know, we did. So now that the actual list comes out, some of those numbers are different. So people like are asking what gives. And I think the simple answer is, well, the original numbers were estimates. So that means that things could change. And now we have a more accurate list.
Yeah, I mean, I think I think most cities um, are are satisfied, and the, and I think cities that aren't have good reason, especially the the place where we're seeing really the biggest um, um, understandable uh, uh, response here is if you're a city over fifty thousand that was classified non-metro, you're essentially the biggest city in the small pot of funds, uh, and so you had a, a, an estimate that looked like that. The bill does not give Treasury any discretion about these classifications. The bill says if you're over 50,000, the census designates you a metro area and you are to be designated metro and you will get from the large cities pot. So that was a mistake by Congress, a misclassification by Congress. If, if cities over 50 got put into the smaller pot. The consequence though, is that you, you go from being the largest city sort of in the small pot to one of the smaller cities in the bigger pot. <laughs> Uh, and and it appears fairly uniform that the the calculation uh, reduces the amount of grant funds coming to you um, in that instance. We're we're working with Treasury on on to see if there's something we can do that's fair to help cities in that scenario. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Like I said, every dollar has been accounted for. Treasury's not holding things back. Um, but you know, just just know that we are in some discussions to see if if a city can demonstrate that they've been disproportionately um, impacted by the new calculation compared to the estimates, if there, if there are options for those cities. Okay. I do want to bring our Lansing team in. Uh, we're talking about the allocations and I want to stick on that for a second. And that is, you know, we're already getting a lot of questions. What about our villages? And I think Mike kind of alluded to the fact that every state is different. And because we do have villages, that's probably one of the reasons why those numbers haven't come out yet. Um, there are concerns from some of our villages that they're going to have to go to their county to get the money. And I'm just going to lay all that out here right now for Chris and John and Mike to talk about what, what should we expect this week when those numbers come out and how will that, how will those dollars finally get to these, these members, particularly our smaller village communities? Well, I think that was one of the things I know we communicated immediately after the March 8th estimates came out. Uh, with Mike and the team at NLC about the fact that all 240 of our villages were missing from those estimate lists. Um, that was one of the first things I know in, in, in communications we sent to Secretary Yellen, and I know that NLC sent in. Uh, so that has been a part of your communication since day one with, with Treasury. Do you get a sense that uh, our villages that our service providing communities will be included in the estimates that come out this week? Yeah, well, I, um... I hate I hate to say yes or no to that one before we see what treasury comes out with, but but you're right. Uh, NLC has submitted the full list of of, of villages from your state uh, with uh, inside our own documented um, list of of cities that didn't appear or municipalities that didn't appear on the list. Uh, we know that treasury's um, using that information. You know, I, I think one way to look at it is. Um, the lump sum going to your state for sub allocation to small cities, um, you know, probably isn't going to change. Uh, so it's just a matter of uh, how, how that lump sum gets allocated um, down. And I think that Treasury is, is going to take every effort to make sure that those dollars get to every eligible unit of local government. I think because there's 200, 200 some odd units we're talking about here, that would be um, it would it would not be in line with their principles that they've laid out to sort of to to miss um, payments of that number of, of municipalities. So, so I think that probably is going to get rem remedied somehow. But um, you know, like I said, until we see the final numbers, um, we won't know. And I should say, um, even if we the when Treasury does release that information, if it's if it's uh, if we don't like the outcome that that, that they've produced. Although the interim rule is in effect, uh, has the power of a final rule, it's still an interim rule. And we know that Treasury is going to proceed uh, on a rolling guidance basis to address certain things. So uh, if uh, something is way off base when they come out with their additional information for small cities, we will have a window to try to address that and get things fixed before things get permanently locked in. And if, and, and with the dollar, let's assume that Treasury does what we're all hoping, uh, we've asked for so that all, all 533 Municipal League members uh, get their, their allocations in the proper spot. Um, the dollars for those non-entitlement communities will flow through the state, but they, the state will appropriate them directly to those local units. They won't have to get them from anywhere else. They'll come from the state, correct? 
That's right. Yep. Uh, the state's responsible for, for sub allocating that. The rules also are very clear that states do not have the authority to make these funds conditional on anything to restrict the use of these dollars beyond what has been outlined in the bill and the treasury guidance. Um, and, and so we think those are strong protections. Uh, the bill says if, if a state fails to do this sub allocation, uh, treasury can penalize states by re recapturing or clawing back state coronavirus funds from them. Uh, and we would view if a city they may not completely, you know, try to hold back funds, but if a city tried to limit the eligible expenditures of these funds, that would constitute a kind of withholding um, uh, of dollars for a for specific, you know, um, policy outcome that was eligible under the bill. And that would be a reason to penalize the states too. So uh, I have a question on a lot of our members' minds. When will they start seeing the money? I, I do know it comes in two separate tranches, so they'll see receive half this year and half next year. When will the first half yeah. get, so get the, the mail, I guess? So for cities <laughs> over 50,000, uh, you can apply for those dollars today. So the Treasury portal uh, is open. There's a set of information that Treasury will want from you, including a DUNS number that most, most large cities probably already have, but you can go to grants.gov to get one if you, if you don't. Um, I think one, one consideration here is that there has to be someone identified in your city, whether it's large or small, Treasury needs a contact and, and someone to go to in terms, if there's questions about accountability. Uh, of course, the chief executives of your, of your communities, could the chief elected official could be that contact, but this program uh, goes is going until uh, 2026. So it says every dollar must be obligated by 2024, but that doesn't mean spent. Uh, but they say they're going to wind down the program in 2026. So that's probably the real spender, expenditure deadline. Uh, you may want someone who's not an elected to, be, to serve that, that function to be the, the, the fiscal face of your community, whether it's a, you know, a, um, a city manager or a chief fiscal officer or something like that, just so you don't have to deal with um, resubmitting information again and again each time uh, your your chief elected officer uh, changes. Okay, I know, I know you guys did a, a great job last week, uh, Mike, with with some of the presentations you've started to do. Um, you know, eligibility, obviously, what can what can the dollars be spent on is a, is a big deal for our for our members to know. You know, if I replace a water main and the road's right. broken and I got to fix the road above it, you know, what do you do? Can you walk through a little bit of the eligibility? I know you guys had a good outline you, you presented last week. Yeah, so 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 it's pretty flexible in terms of the identified um, eligibilities. Um, so so there's uh, I guess two big if you, there are a couple of big categories, right? There's there's the things you do to stabilize households and small businesses. That's essentially the economic harm. Uh, it's very flexible in the types of interventions you can do for residents and small businesses that, that have been hurt by coronavirus. Now, the, the key here is you just have to continuously relate it back to coronavirus, like show the harm as a consequence or coronavirus intensified the harm. Uh, but you can do lots, of, you can do um, direct cash assistance uh, to residents and small businesses that could come in the form of grants or loans. There's actually, uh, I think the bill even thinks that some cities or the rule will allow cities to experiment with universal basic income if they so choose with, with, with these dollars. Um, the key though, is that um, Treasury has created a safe harbor in the form of qualified census tracts when it comes to economic harm. Uh, so uh, throughout the rule, you'll see that Treasury uh, recommends that cities address uh, communities and sectors that have suffered disproportionate harm, that, uh, that harm, where harm has been made worse by underlying inequities or historic um, disparate impacts, uh, th those sorts of things. And so if you're spending um, to address that economic home inside a qualified census tract, qualified census tract just means you have an area of uh, concentrated poverty uh, within that census tract. Most places uh, will, will have uh, if you have a, if you have a section of town that's uh, in distress and struggling like, like that, you probably have a qualified census tract. Treasury will presume the expenditure you make is eligible uh, if the if you're spending in the qualified census tract or if the outcome is intended to help people who've been disproportionately hurt um, by coronavirus. If you but you're not required to spend that way, right? If you want to if you want to spend uh, on economic harm outside of a qualified census tract, you can. 
It's just good. It means you have to provide additional documentation to show that you're um, uh, spending within what's required, that you're not going to have the same presumption of eligibility that you would get inside a census tract. Um, so, there's, so there's that. Uh, when it comes to uh, infrastructure, it's fairly flexible under the category of water and sewer, but it's very restrictive on inf infrastructure that's not specifically water, sewer, or um, broadband. So, so we got know, a question about roads. So that would right. be that so, would be a no. <laughs> so if the if the road is just an impediment to getting to a water pipe, a water sewer situation, right? Uh, then the road is part of the water sewer project, and and uh, it will be counted as. So for instance, the the bill says um, any sort of lead abatement, uh, remediating lead paint, replacing lead service lines. That's all an eligible expenditure. Uh, whatever you have to penetrate to make to to get to that lead line is part of your project. Um, okay. But you know it, it doesn't mean you can fix um, two miles of Main Street if the lines are only under a section of it, right? It has yeah. to be directly related uh, to water and sewer, and and those lead, and those line improvements have to be directly in response to some sort of COVID-related harm or concern. And why did they take roads out? I heard it was because it was the American Jobs Plan, which is President Biden's, you know, infrastructure plan. They didn't want this to kind of compete with that. Is that the reason, yeah. or is there some other reason? I don't think. Actually, I just want to make sure. I, I think. I think I may have misstated something. Uh, the okay. infrastructure does not have to be in direct response to a COVID concern. Only the okay. um, the uh, economic harm stuff. The infrastructure just says it has to be water, sewer, or broadband. I think. Um, I'm not exactly sure why why roads or other forms of infrastructure weren't weren't put in. I think okay. it, it sort of had to do with um, what the priorities were of the senators at the time. But certainly, um, there was an understanding that the infrastructure bill was coming next. And I said there is a surface transportation bill, the um, the semiannual one that Congress has to pass this year. So they'll be passing another highways bill this year that should be providing money to to cities and towns um, for surface okay. transportation. All right. Well, we do have a ton of questions from from our members. Uh, I'm not surprised by that at all. I don't know if we're going to be able to get to them all, but I did want to highlight a couple of them. One, uh, uh, Michael did uh, refer to the PowerPoint uh, that they gave last week that is on our website, Inside 208, uh, one of the blogs about the Maris rescue plan. You can find that. We can also post it, I think, here in the, uh, maybe you already posted it, Chris, here in the in the chat. Um, so the we had a question, a lot of questions about the non-entitlement communities. One was, um, uh, when do you think that list will come out? And then also, can they start applying for like the cities over fifty thousand, or they can't really apply for that money yet? Can they go to that portal too now, or do they have to wait? I believe anybody anybody can go, go can go get started on the portal, and every city needs that Duns number uh, from Grants.gov, so so you can get started. Um, we expected the the uh, new calculations to come out uh, either Friday or today, um, but ha but haven't been in touch with Treasury since last Thursday. So, uh, so that was the latest that we know. I know that they're 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 trying to get that those dollars or those uh, those calculations out quickly so that there can be some kind of window for cities to respond to if they, if they think they've been miscalculated in some way. Okay. Well, and there was another. Go ahead, Chris. Just on that. I know the reporting side, the accountability side, one of the things that John and I noticed as we were reading through the, the 151 pages, um, there is a big difference and there's a lot more flexibility for smaller communities uh, with regard to reporting, right? Oh, that's right. So the, the administrative and regulatory burden on small cities is substantially less than it is on big cities. Mm -hmm. So larger cities will have to file um, regular reports, quarterly reports on, on how they spent their dollars. That's not the case for small communities. I think they're going to, I think I saw, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, I think it's an annual sort of filing um, for small cities and the types of information that, that, that Treasury is seeking, we expect will be um, not as detailed as it is for the larger community. So for instance, We've made the case that um, if your city is spending for revenue losses, as you know, the there's a category of spending just for, just for revenue replacement, that the expenditure itself will be the dollar will be spent once you've spent on revenue replacement, so that those dollars can go once they're in your general fund. We've told Treasury that they should not require cities to further track those dollars 
uh, once once they've made the case that this is for lost revenue. Um, Treasury has told us that the that what they want to make sure of is simply that once funding goes into the general or once once the dollars go into the general fund, cities aren't spending on the specifically prohibited expenditures that are in the rule. They don't want necessarily want to track how every dollar is spent um, once it goes into your general fund through through lost revenue. So, so we expect also um, if they follow our advice, the cities. Uh, smaller cities will have will not have to do that kind of documentation. There may be um, a higher premium on larger cities ensuring because they have more dollars that those dollars aren't being spent on prohibited um, expenditures even even after they go into the general fund. Okay. Um, Mike, we have a couple it, questions. Go ahead, John. Yeah, Mike. I, just if I can, I can jump in here because I think there's something really important because our members, much like you know your members across the country, always ask, "Can I spend it on X or?" Can I spend it on why? I mean, clearly the list of prohibited expenditures is relatively small, but pretty specific. <clears throat> the list of eligible expenditures is non-exclusive though. And I think that's something mm -hmm. really important for us to understand just because it's not in the list doesn't mean it's not an eligible expense. Can you just kind of elaborate yep. on yep. that a little that's, bit? That's right. So, um, so you saw this with the CARES Act rolling guidance too. And, and this betrays a, a little bit of sort of treasury acknowledging that they cannot anticipate every expenditure because they, they don't have a full and comprehensive grasp of all the different ways local governments operate or, or support their, their residents. Uh, and so there are, there are very long non-exclusive lists of specific expenditures you, you can make. Uh, you can find that in the frequently asked questions and in the rule. Um, but as long as the expenditure complies with the law and, and not necessarily what's in the regulations, if it still complies with the law, uh, that expenditure should be eligible. What Treasury's done is provided a, a framework in a couple places. We've we sort of summarized it in four different questions for cities to ask themselves about specific projects. They just want to make sure that you can show there's a connection uh, to harm resulting from COVID for that expenditure. Um, that um, that the connection is either causal or that it in, um, uh, intensifies or makes worse the, uh, the harm, um, and that you can um, document and prove the outcome you were seeking was achieved with the dollars. So, so there's greater documentation requirements if you're going to spend on something not specifically identified by Treasury, but but you can spend those dollars uh, nonetheless that way. Okay, so um, one thing, Chris, I saw you did post a link to the portal because people are asking for that. You posted it in there, but you also said that 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 the um, non entitlements should not apply through that portal. Is that correct? That is, yeah, that's information okay. directly from that page. The only people okay. using the portal right now are states, tribal entities, territorial counties, and metro cities. So the non entitlements or cities under fifty thousand or villages. Um, they should just wait basically for the state list to come out and then the further instruction will be forthcoming as far or that just will automatically go to them, we think. I see head nodding. No, I, I, think, I think that's, that's, a, that's a good catch. Okay. So, I, I, think, okay. I think you probably are more up to speed on, on it than I am at this point. <laughs> okay, all right. So this has some other quick questions. Again, you know, what can we use, can't use another? I think there's a couple good ones on here that will uh, impact a lot of people. Can we use it on... Uh, revenue losses due to facility rentals. So if they have like a senior center that has a hall for weddings and also for parking loss revenues and then for dams, can we use it? For, that's the three I saw that jumped out at me. Uh, well, in terms of lost revenue from parking and, um, and uh, facilities, yes. So, so that would definitely, if, um, if it's a publicly owned facility, publicly owned parking garage, any kind of publicly owned uh, infrastructure um, that's that's fee based. Um, any uncollected fees that's that's lost revenue, uh, and okay. you should and you should count it. Um, in terms of uh, one of the practices we're recommending to help um, people um, get back to work and, and deal with some of the, the harm, the fiscal harm related to COVID. So so fines and fees are our revenue. Uncollected fines and fees are. Um, our revenue losses. If a city is going to use, now Treasury doesn't require this, this is NLC's recommendation, but if you're going to use your revenue uh, or use your grant to replace lost revenue from, from fines and fees, particularly fines, 
um, it is a, it would be a, a good practice to help advance economic mobility to forgive those fines uh, on those residents so that they could have a, a more fresh start coming out of the coronavirus. That's one less one less thing hanging over them um, that could potentially be a reason why an employer uh, would choose not to hire them uh, as they're sort of looking at their credit and those sorts of things. Um, but yes, but those are lost revenue. I'm not I'm not sure how the dams play into it, uh, Matt. Okay. Okay. In terms of lost yeah. revenue, I know a couple of additional comments that have come in. There's been a lot of conversation about, and you guys did a good job of kind of laying out, and, and I know the, the guidance really lays out some formulas and some, some charts that people can follow to try and do that revenue estimate. There is, a, there is an expectation that if you received CARES funding last year, you don't have to count that as part of your revenue stream, correct? That's right. Yeah. So federal federal revenue um, is excluded, but state state transfers to localities is included. <laughs> uh, so so they're giving us road dollars through state road taxes, or if they're giving a uh, revenue sharing as we get here, those would be counted as our revenues. That's right. And uh, in some places, if your state cut uh, made cuts in payments to localities, you could you have. could calculate that as lost revenue. Yes. Yeah. And we had that here. So there you, yeah. I do want. <laughs> I, I do want to give Jen and Harrisana some time to talk about their issues that they're talking that they are covering right now. But I just had a couple quick updates from or questions from Mike. And what about uh, cybersecurity? That's come up from our members. Is that something that is addressed? Yep. So very clearly, the answer is yes. You can spend for cybersecurity. I think especially now that the that pipeline has has really put it in the headlines. Um, Treasury is very clear. Yes, you may spend for uh, for protecting um, protecting yourself in that way. Okay. Um, any other uh, questions that uh, really jumped out at you guys that you thought we should cover? Like I said, we will have future, uh, we are planning a future webinar on this topic. We do have a lot of resources available on our Inside 208 blog. We're doing regular posts on this topic. So if you're not already a subscriber to that, it's free. Just go to Inside 208 on our website um, and you can just subscribe uh, just with your email and name. Uh, there was one question I saw was interesting. When you're registering for, uh, through the portal, you have to supply, it says a driver's license, a social security number. Some people are concerned about that. You know, if that's true, Mike, and why that is? It, well, it, it is true. Um, you do have to provide personal identifying um, information to, to Treasury, including a picture. Um, uh, just, just because that's what Treasury, so if you think about uh, Treasury administering or being responsible for 19,000 grantees in addition to the 3,000 counties in the 50 states. Uh, the context for the information they're asking for is just to help them quickly uh, track down and contact the person the city says um, is the contact person if, should any situation arise. So, you know, um, this could be anything. So if a whistleblower raises a concern, if they see something in the media, if they, uh, if, if someone in your city uh, submitted a question through the portal or through their website, or through their website, I should say, they want to make sure they're getting back to the designated person they ought to be getting back to. And so that, uh, with uh, with the sheer number of grantees in this program, that's the kind of information they think they need to reliably reach the people um, that they need to reach. Okay. I think Go ahead, Chris. Just as we kind of wrap up this portion, I know there's obviously a ton of, of unanswered questions still. I know you guys are still going through and, and figuring, figuring out interpretations. Uh, we're still working with Treasury. We're still waiting on more, more information to come. Uh, on the positive side though, you mentioned this money is coming in two tranches. So this year and next year, we don't have to have it allocated until the end of 24. And we've got through at least 26 to spend it. So there's time to make the decisions, time to understand and, and get a full comprehensive plan um, and work with all of our own stakeholders with the state and with our own partners, the nonprofit community, our businesses to make sure we've got the best, most effective plan possible. If we, we don't have to worry about having these answers tomorrow. Right. And you guys will be doing webinars continuously, I imagine, over the next few weeks. Yeah. Oh, yeah, de definitely. I think the, the, you know, the immediate thing for the city to do is to get just get a good handle on what you can and can't spend on. I think it'll be helpful. We're gonna create some materials too to help your residents, your stakeholders also understand that. So as you have nonprofits and and uh, small business owners and, and others coming to you with ideas about how they should spend and they should be coming to you with ideas and you should be soliciting them, at least in terms of prohibited expenditures, you can quickly take that off the table without a lot of um, back, back and forth, which would be good. And then 
once you have a good grasp on that, you know, that's when you start thinking about how you're going to obligate these dollars for, for lasting change. The nice thing here is unlike federal appropriations annually, where you never know if you're going to uh, get X dollars or not because there's shutdowns or you know, proposed cuts and then they get restored. This is funding, two years of funding certainty. And I think that's a very solid basis to do perhaps more innovative things that you can do because you can count on those dollars in your budget for two years. Right, and that's what we're really talking, we talk about that too. Look at ways that are that investments that you can make in your community that are gonna be the most impactful to the people who need it the most. Um, and there is, I believe, uh, like a stipulation in there that allows the money to be spent on homeless uh, oh, yeah. issues, homeless related. Um, and also, uh, I, I believe blight removal. Is that covered That's right. Well? Well, I, I think I saw that. So this is back to those. If it's in a qualified census tract, um, it's, presumed, it's presumed that it's a approved expenditure. You can actually... Um, it, it makes housing affordable housing development an eligible expenditure. So if you have... Uh, abandoned homes, vacant homes, distressed properties. Uh, the city can acquire those with these dollars, can rehab with those dollars. Um, they can rehab them and return them to affordable housing usefulness uh, at, in terms of economic harm uh, or, or knock them down probably under the public health measure um, uh, in, in that it, it's a public health nuisance, especially if there's lead paint or leather, other lead hazards in that property, the, the the regs are very clear that lead abatement is an eligible use. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Michael and, and the NLC team for joining us today. You're welcome to stay on and, and go uh, turn your cameras off. We're going to switch gears here with, quick with our state team and talk about a couple of hot topics, but we really appreciate your time today and your, your ongoing partnership with us. Great. Thank, thank you very much. Yeah. Nice. So I want to start right... Thank you. I want to start right in with Jennifer Richtrink, uh, one of our legislative associates. A big issue you're working on is the short-term rental issue. There's a, a big hearing tomorrow in the State House uh, Tourism Committee uh, about a bill that uh, would really, uh, we're very opposed to this. So go ahead, Jen, kind of take it over and what, what do we need from our members and why? Yeah, so actually there are two hearings tomorrow now. Um, since we started this live with the League, um, the Senate um, Reg Reform Committee has actually posted the Senate version of this bill, which is Senate Bill 446. Uh, um, but first thing in the morning, 9 a.m. tomorrow, the House Commerce and Tourism Committee is having a hearing on House Bill 4722. Um, we sent an alert out this morning that hopefully um, you have received, and we are asking our members to please engage with that committee. Um, as well as their legislators, um, and, and, and voice the opposition. This is a, a huge deal. This is the same bill that we have seen for a number of years now. And I think it's important to stress um, not only the personal circumstances that's going on in your committee or community, but how the way this bill is written, it silences um, any ability for you to assist your residents um, and your local stakeholders um, if you are having a shortage of affordable housing, workforce housing in your community, um, this um, not being able to regulate, have reasonable regulations around vacation rentals um, just exacerbates that issue as well. Yeah, and, and you, you talk about, you know, there are communities out there that are, are really kind of handling this well in, in creative local solution focused ways. You have two of them coming to testify tomorrow. I believe Ferndale and Grand Haven. So there are examples of, of communities that are doing this. Um, and we just want to, again, continue to have the community the ability to, to regulate uh, and make these decisions at the local level. Definitely. And if anyone is interested in trying to testify either in person or um, via Zoom, please reach out to me um, and uh, we will help you make some arrangements with that. Anybody else, um, definitely encouraging those who are submitting um, any kind of written uh, communication to make sure you are including the committee clerk. Um, when we get off this, I'll be updating a blog to make sure all of the Senate uh, Reg Reform Committee information um, is out there for folks. But we want to make sure that, that whatever you're sending um, is being entered into the official committee record. And one thing, Matt. And Josh really asked a question oh, real quick, thing, Chris. Uh, one thing that's really important here, too, and I think Jen's done a good job talking about this over the last few years, 
This is not just a vacation rental community. This is not just a tourism community issue. This is any community that has any sort of rental ordinance or rental inspection program in place. Yeah, one key point of the bill, it says you cannot treat a short-term rental, which they're defining as any lease of 30 days, of less than 30 days. Um, so you can't um, treat it any differently than any other dwelling in, in a district. And um, rental programs, local rental inspection programs, you don't inspect owner-occupied residences. I mean, unless there's a severe blight issue or some kind of fire has taken place, um, those are not, um, you don't inspect those. So technically the bill is saying you cannot inspect a short-term rental because you're not inspecting all dwellings within that zoning district. And I have I a good question a here. Question. Yeah, about oh, preemption. Will this preempt oh, existing yeah. regulations? Yes, absolutely. This would waive any kind of existing regulations you have off the books. So if you spend all this time and you have an ordinance that you like and it's in place and it's working well, the state's going to come in and say, oh, you can't do that anymore. Yep. And that's why you need to talk to your legislators and let them know how this is working well in your community and how you are best situated to um, regulate these to whatever the unique circumstances of your community is. And or if this is not an issue in your community, you're not regulating it, but you would like the opportunity to that if in the future it does become something that you need to deal with. Okay. All right, Jen, I know real quick, the other issues, a hot button for you is the gravel mining issue. We put out an action alert on that as well. Uh, just a quick uh, update on that. So committee was held last Thursday. Um, there was a number, um, a testimony went on for, for an hour, about an hour and a half. Um, that committee has not posted officially, but we're hearing that the Senate Infrastructure, Transportation and Infrastructure Committee will be holding another hearing uh, this Wednesday at noon um, to take that bill up again, and we're anticipating that they're going to try to vote it out. Now, um, there was another bill that was introduced by Senator Daley um, that is kind of an alternative. It gives more, uh, it maintains the local, you know, the limited ability that locals have to regulate uh, sand and gravel mines right now. And so we are trying to really push that as an alternative approach um, and leave um, Senator Anna Nix one sitting in committee, but it looks like it's going to get a vote here in committee on Wednesday. Okay. And that's frustrating really for both of these issues. These are issues we've been working on for a long time when we work in subgroups and committees and forming, forming kind of compromises and, and none of those compromises were reflected in, any, in either of these bills, right? Correct. Yeah, Correct. That's, this uh, is, that's it is. It's, it's frustrating to sit at the table and, you know, be there in good faith negotiating, pushing, um, you know, alternative approaches that we know not all of our members might be 100% happy with, but we're trying to maintain and find, you know, something that can uh, help with both sides um, of the argument. And uh, it seems to be in both of these issues, short-term rentals and the gravel mining, that um, there's been a, a total disregard for what local government um, has been trying to do. Okay. All right. Uh, do you want to move to Harrisana? Uh, what's some of the, the uh, things that you have uh, going right now that uh, our members should know about? Well, one thing that I thought would be helpful to share, uh, we had a quick update that you may have seen on our Inside 208 blog on Friday, where we shared the draft rules that are being presented by MIOSHA to uh, codify what we have as the emergency rules for the workplace related to COVID-19. So we know for the past year, we've been required to wear masks everywhere that we go, streamline our services, prioritize remote work and remote services when available. Um, and with the intention that should we get back to normal, should our vaccination rates improve, we can return our municipal services and just general services across the board um, for all industries and communities uh, to a standard of normal or something closer to that. You know, this past week, we saw that the CDC updated their guidance so that those who are vaccinated no longer have to wear masks indoors and outdoors. And MDHHS also looked into that and updated their guidance as well. So what we have as of today is that the, my, those draft rules uh, are still active. They haven't been rescinded yet. And so I'll drop a link to our blog where you can read more thoroughly the draft rules, the highlighted points that can be concerning and sometimes harmful to local governments and opportunities where our members can provide written comment as well as uh, attend the public hearing on May 26th. 
Right. And we, like you said, we've been pretty critical. We're fairly critical of these, these rules. They're very contrary to some of the other things we're hearing right now. Is that correct? For sure. It is. I mean, what we're looking at is, you know, guidance that came out last week that says, you know, we are on a path to normal, but what we're looking at in the rules, the rules, excuse me, would make what we have currently now permanent. So requiring masks in businesses, in different services, requiring those who are obtaining those services to also wear masks um, and other protections for COVID-19. But then again, you know, there's still time. We have about 10, 11 days until the public hearing. That could still be, uh, those rules could still be withdrawn and we could change our course as well. So- Right, and you you wrote, and you wrote in the, that nowhere in the rules is it even used the word vaccine once, which, and the governor's all talking about, you know, we need to get certain percentages of vaccinated people to, to root, open up certain things. So that was like, oh, well, why isn't, you know, that in there somewhere? Yeah. And that's the thing you know, we've been able to communicate to the administration um, as well, that we have concerns with the inconsistency. So we're happy to still have those conversations and we're hopefully, hopefully being hopeful that in the coming days we'll see some more adjustments that make more sense in the direction that we're going. Okay so I know we do have a lot of still questions on the ARP like I said we weren't able to get to all of those a lot of people asking can I use it on this and that so I'm going to post right now our staff's uh, members emails in there so if you have direct questions particularly on the ARP feel free to send an email to, to, to Chris and John they're kind of our lead on the ARP stuff they'll be happy to help you as much as they can. Uh, we did get another question is when is the list going to come out for the non-entitlements? Uh, we're hoping this week there is no list ex- currently in existence, but you could figure out uh, a per capita number potentially um, uh, for your community based on your, your most recent uh, population census. Uh, so that's that's covered that part. Um, and I do want to remind our listeners that our next Live with the League is uh, June 1st on Tuesday. Uh, we're also working on a series of other webinars related to ARP, so keep an eye out for those. Um, we have a lead and copper rule session coming up that John's been involved with on uh, May 20th, which is Thursday of this week. And then we have another one uh, next uh, Tuesday, the 25th, uh, in coordination with the Michigan Municipal Executives. Any other parting words from our team? All right, hearing done. I appreciate it. Thank you for everybody's time, and thank you for joining us. Have a good day. Thanks, everybody. Bye now. This has been a production of the Michigan Municipal League. For more information on our programs and services, please visit www.mnl.org and join us for the next episode of We Love Where You Live.